0: Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua Sheets. Today is Friday, and Fridays, at least whenever I can arrange the details, we do live Q&A. Usually we kick these shows off with a little bit of music, but my computer is failing me at the moment, so let's see if we can make the Q&A call a little bit smoother. <laughs> any, any Friday that I can arrange the details, uh, we go ahead and host a live call-in talk show. I've got one, two, three, four, five callers on the line. If you'd like to join us for one of these Friday shows, you can do that by becoming a patron of the show at Radical Personal Finance. Now that won't work. Patreon.com slash Radical Personal Finance. And I would love to join you or have you join me on one of these Friday shows. We begin with Andy in Indiana. Andy, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir?
1: Josh thanks for taking my call. Um, my question is basically about how to travel uh, effectively. If I am interested in the, the multiple flag theory, the relocation and actualization type stuff that you've thought about. Uh, for background, I've basically never traveled. I've lived in Indiana my whole life. Uh, I've only been I mean I've been out of the state, the state of the US, only left the country one time. Uh, so my only conception of traveling is like, I want to go to Disneyland or see the Eiffel Tower and flying there and seeing a, a current attraction and staying in a you know, probably a, a major American chain hotel. Um, I don't feel like that would give me any idea of what i like to locate this place or consider moving here, at an emergency or any of that sort of uh, information. I'm curious how you would recommend going about that once the Secondary backup option of being able to move, and might be open to moving away from home uh, permanently, but doesn't know where to
0: start. Do you want the one-hour answer, the two-hour answer, the or the one-day seminar on this one?
1: (laughs) Uh, I love the one-day seminar. Actually,
0: (laughs) you're laying up a softball for me, so let me give you maybe ten minutes or so, ten to fifteen minutes on that, just to give you some ideas. So. For the uninitiated, um, the word that Andy said there was flag theory. What is flag theory first and foremost? Flag theory, also sometimes known as PT theory, was a concept that was coined back in the 1980s by a famous financial advisor named Harry Schultz. He and his libertarian buddies were trying to figure out how they could live freely in an unfree world. They were frustrated by what they saw as encroachment on their liberty happening on all sides. And so they sat down and they said, how can we live freely in an unfree world? And they said, well, what we could do, one of the things we could do is we could stop trying to find or create the perfect country, and we could just use each country for what it does well. And originally, they coined this as three-flag theory, that was kind of the, the, the starting point Then it became five-flag theory. Five flags is pretty good. Sometimes now people refer to it as six or seven flags, just depends. And so the concept of planting a flag basically comes down to where can I go and get something that one particular place offers me that does a good job on it? And this is something that for me has been quite useful in my life. In fact, it was something that provided... A number of years ago, uh, kind of an escape valve. I was frustrated with some of the political trends happening in my native country of the United States, and I was just wishing things were different. But I had watched my life, my entire life, basically seeing the my, many of the trends that I cared about going against me. I wasn't winning on any, in virtually anything. And so, along the way, I, I as a as a frustrated libertarian-leaning, you know, conservative-oriented person, I stumbled across the concept of flag theory, and I read the the original one of the original books called uh, PT. And when I read the book, I, it just kind of opened up a new world to me, and I realized after after a while, I realized that if you want to live freely in an unfree world this is what you do, right? You basically, you don't try to change the world. You basically accept it the way that it is. You stop looking for the perfect country, the perfect state, and you just use each particular place for what it already does well. And that gets you the closest possible that you can to freedom. And so that's flag theory. Now, the implementation of flag theory involves a few different things. And I'll describe those things at a moment. But what I want to emphasize to you is that you don't have to do all of these things uh, in order for you to engage in flag theory. Remember that the guys who originated the concept of flag theory were basically um, you know, a bunch of millionaire libertarian playboys, a lot of them, and they were trying to figure out, well, how can I live this internationally oriented uh, libertarian millionaire lifestyle um, and engage in all of the libertine activities that I want to, and and pay no tax, et cetera. But um, you can still do it. And so, the first thing to come that 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 I would answer is. You don't start necessarily by traveling. You start by saying, what's annoying me? What's worrying me? What, what where, do, where, do my, what problem am I trying to solve? And then you start figuring out where could I plant a flag, meaning what action could I take that would start to solve that? Now, let me run through some of the big picture flags, and then I'll apply it a little bit more locally as well. In the original conception of flag theory, there was a big focus on living tax free. And so, one of the ways that you could do that was by planting a citizenship flag. And that's flag number one. And so, the way the idea is, you want to be a citizen of a country that will leave you alone and will not tax you. Now, obviously, right, Andy, you're from the United States. I'm from the United States. A huge majority of my audience is from the United States. So, we don't necessarily have that privilege as being US Americans. Our country thinks that it's right for, for them to tax us no matter where we go. So you can minimize your taxes by leaving the United States And that's something that I think has some benefit. Um, You know, it's something that I have done. I've talked about doing. You can earn a six figure income in some cases, if you've got the right circumstances, even a multi six figure income and legally pay not a dime of federal income taxes, not a dime of state income taxes, and not a dime of employment taxes. And that can be a significant savings. You know, for an average uh, single individual earning one hundred thousand dollars a year, by my calculations, you can possibly save about thirty thousand dollars a year, about fifteen grand of employment taxes and fifteen grand of federal income taxes if you'll spend the vast majority of your time out physically present outside of the United States. Now, you don't have to have a different citizenship to do that, but one of the things that you might want to do is, if possible, plant a citizenship flag in another place. Because in an ultimate scenario, especially if you're, you know, well, an internet entrepreneur or something like that, somebody with the ability to make money, having a citizenship from a country that's not going to tax you and that's not going to pose a bunch of laws and regulations on you can be quite useful. So that's a citizenship flag. Now, for you, you don't start necessarily by traveling there. You start by saying, is that something that's of interest to me? Um, I do think that most forward thinking people would be well served by preparing for themselves an alternate citizenship at some point in time, whether that's because your country comes you know, knocking and they want to draft you, conscript you for some war or whether they impose some kind of weird new laws or regulations on you you want to you want to try to plant a citizenship flag and so there are different ways to do that right you could start by saying you know was my was my mom from Italy or was my great grandmother from Ireland or from the UK or something like that and try to see if there's some kind of uh, of heritage in your family tree that you could um, help to facilitate planting, you know, uh, meaning filing for a citizenship application there. You could go on and you could say, well, maybe I should move to another country and try to become a citizen there. And so if you've always wanted to move to Canada, you could move to Canada and you could be just live there for three to five years, apply for Canadian citizenship and become a Canadian citizen. Um, if you have a lot of money, then, and you really want to reduce that, you could do that by, uh, potentially purchasing citizenship in a country that sells citizenship and thus getting for yourself another passport. Uh, right? If, if I, if I'm talking to a guy and guy says, listen, Joshua, I make $10 million a year. I make all my money through the internet. I've got all these businesses and I don't want to pay taxes legally and I want to do it legally. Well, the answer is, You usually, in that case, you'd go to one of the five Caribbean islands that sells citizenship and you would pay them for an individual somewhere around $100,000 to $150,000, depending on which program you go through, and they will sell you citizenship in their country. It's entirely legal. It's entirely acceptable. You could choose a tax-free country, uh, right? Two totally tax-free countries, such as St. Kitts and Nevis. That's the first country. The second country would be Grenada. Uh, And you could purchase a citizenship for yourself. Then at that point, you could renounce your U.S. citizenship. There's some formalities there with that process. But that entrepreneur making $10 million a year could move to St. Kitts and Nevis, buy citizenship, live on the island, become a tax resident of St. Kitts and Nevis, run his business from St. Kitts and Nevis, and pay legally not a dime of tax because he has a citizenship flag planted outside the United States. So that's a citizenship flag. Uh, the second thing, the second flag is residency, right? Where is your residence? Now, here, there's a distinction between residency and tax residency. If you are a U.S. American, you don't need to worry about the concept of tax residency because you are a tax resident of the United States. This is a concept that is of more concern for citizens of other nations. So, for example, imagine you're from the U.K., and you're trying to figure out, hey, I make $10 million a year from my internet business. How do I, you know, what do I do to 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 change that? Well, you can leave the UK and retain your British citizenship. You can keep your passport. You, you can do that. You don't necessarily need another citizenship. But what you need is you need to plant a flag for a tax residency. And so you try to choose a country that may tax you more lightly or tax you not at all, right? There's a reason that a lot of... Um, British businessmen live in Dubai. Uh, So you might move to Dubai and file for a residency there, get yourself registered as a tax resident, and now you can terminate your tax obligations to the UK government, and now you simply are a tax resident of another place. And so that's a residency flag. Third flag is usually considered to be a business flag. right? Where do I run my business? And so the classic conception of the three-flag theory was this. You have your citizenship from a country that doesn't tax you and that doesn't conscript you and that will leave you alone and not impose all kinds of onerous reporting requirements on you for your bank accounts and your crypto holdings, etc. You have a residency flag in a jurisdiction that will leave you alone, that won't tax you on your foreign source income, and that will give you a reasonable lifestyle when you're there. Then you have your business run in a third jurisdiction— and you choose a business jurisdiction that won't tax you, that has business friendly laws, et cetera, and that's your business flag. And so if you do this right, you can see that you can set this up in a fairly tax efficient way. Now every business is gonna be different, but these are the ways that you set up you know, those three flags. And those are the three flags that make the biggest difference. The fourth flag that is often conceived of was, is then also where is your money, right? Where do you store your money? So this is your banking flag. And what those early theorists developed was the idea that your money is probably safer in another place than where you're physically located. So if you're physically located in the United States and your money is physically located in the United States, then your money is quite a bit more accessible to somebody who has control over your person or who knows where you are. But if you're physically located in the United States and your money is in the Cayman Islands, well, there's a degree of separation there and you have a little bit more protection from your assets. So the idea is, can I choose the world's best place to store my money and to do my banking and to do my investments? Uh... So that's the banking flag. Then we get a little bit more esoteric. For example, some people go on and they say, well, where should I store my physical assets? If I've got a bucket of gold, maybe it'd be best if my bucket of gold wasn't in my basement. Maybe that should be in, you know, another jurisdiction entirely, a place where they got a better quality vault than my gun safe at home. Uh, you talk about your digital assets, right? Where should you host your website? You don't want your website to get taken down and some kind of coordinated attack against you. And so uh, where can you host your website or where do you hold your, your digital assets? Uh, so you can disconnect, disintermediate each of your assets and you might move each asset to its best jurisdiction. So let's talk practical now. These things, I believe, work really well. And if you're a committed uh, individual, right, you've got big money and you've got big ambition and you've got big commitment to actually put in place all these different uh, factors, then no question, right, you can put in place a comprehensive lifestyle spread all around the world. And this will buy you greater security, um, greater protection, uh, and greater freedom, And the early, in fact, one of the things that I have proved is that is what the the early practitioners believed that one of the things that you were better off is is simply never actually living in a country where you have any flags planted. So you know the basic idea was. You actually want to spend your time as a tourist passing through destinations where you're simply a tourist. Now, again, these guys were hardcore, right? You read W.G. Hill and his original writings. I mean, they were hardcore, but Hill would basically live as a tourist, right? And so you could imagine in in especially today's world, the difference between today and back then was that those guys had to be millionaires, uh, and live off of their assets. Today, we have so many of us who can earn our living through the internet that the options are much bigger. But, um, but if you spend time as a tourist, you're pretty much left alone, right? Tourists are often treated—it's my opinion that tourists are treated better by most countries than our citizens or residents of that country. It's funny. Um, we were down in Costa Rica— uh, a couple of months uh, see about two months ago spent a month there in Costa Rica and Costa Rica was having all of these uh, they were having restrictions for coronavirus and so I was speaking to some of the locals and what I found out was that they had restrictions on when you could drive your car. Uh, And they had restrictions on when you could be out of your house. So there was a curfew. You weren't allowed to be out at certain hours, depending on where you were in the country. And then you were only allowed to drive your car on certain days of the week. So if you're trying to get to work, well, you can't get to—there were some exceptions, evidently, for people to get to work, but, you know, you couldn't drive your car. But who was exempt from that? Well, tourists. (laughs) If you were a tourist and you were driving a rental car, then you were entirely exempted from the restrictions on driving. If you were on your way to a hotel or from a hotel, you were exempted from the restrictions, and no one was going to bother with you with, as a tourist. And so it's kind of a you know example number five hundred and seventy-three that I've collected, showing how governments usually treat tourists better than they treat their citizens and their residents. Right? Uh, I bought a, a piece of electronic gear recently when I was here in Europe. And when I was sitting there looking at the receipt, I was uh, the guy told me, he said, if you want to get your VAT tax refunded, because I'm a tourist here, right? I I came in on my American passport and just a tourist here. But being a tourist, if I want to get my VAT tax refunded, which is 18% um, of my purchase, all I need to do is I had to just register my receipt and then I could take it to the authorities in the airport and they would refund me on my VAT tax. And so, you know, all of the local European citizens and residents, they don't have that option. But since I'm a tourist here, I get a refund on my VAT tax when I leave the country. And so, you know, this is the world that we live in. And so you can do that as well. Now, to your travel question, notice that each of those flags has its own thing, right? You could live in Indiana Um but and you may never want to do anything else, uh, and so you would say, "Well, do I need or want another citizenship flag? Uh, if your grandmother was from Ireland, right, get a file for your Irish citizenship. Uh, but do you need to go and pay for another passport? Probably not, but you could, right? If you had a lot of money. I remember years ago when uh, Neil Strauss wrote his book Emergency." Uh, he talked in that book about how he had gone and purchased at the time it was four hundred thousand dollars. He had purchased citizenship in Saint Kitts and Nevis to create for himself a Plan B. He did, as far as I know, Neil still lives in the United States. He didn't renounce his U.S. citizenship. He didn't do anything, but he's got that Saint Kitts and Nevis passport that he paid for, um, sitting in his in his personal effects. And so most of the time, you're not going to need it. But when would he need it? Well, there could be a global pandemic and U.S. Americans couldn't travel. Uh, There was a time about a year ago when the U.S. passport just was basically worthless. But the St. Kitts and Nevis passport had a lot greater travel freedom at that time. And so that would be one example of a little bit of travel freedom, Uh, perhaps depending on the right right passport uh, a businessman might do that for example maybe a businessman who has a lot of business in Russia and China might choose to purchase Grenadian citizenship and create a, and have a Grenadian passport well the citizens of Grenada can travel visa free to Russia and visa free to China now they're still subject to entry rules as visitors right a little bit mixed up by the pandemic But they have the ability to travel there without having to go to the embassy and apply for a visa like U.S. American citizens do. And so for somebody with frequent travel there, that could be a big deal. In your situation, I wouldn't recommend that you make it a first target, but it is worth paying attention to. Now, to the travel question, some of these flags require only a little or no travel at all. So I think the best flag would be something like banking. Right? Anybody can move some money offshore, uh, and I recommend that you do it. You've heard me talk on the show about how I see this as very valuable preparation in case you run into a scenario where you have high inflation uh, in your primary currency. And so I recommend to people usually that the first place they should go is Canada, and the first bank account you probably should open would be a Canadian bank account. Why? Well, because you can drive there during normal times and they finally just open the border. Uh, but you can drive to Canada. You can physically go and the Canadians will open an account for you as a tourist. That's not the same all around the world. Many countries in the world, uh, you have to be a resident of that country. Uh, in some cases, you have to be more than a resident, but but you have to be a resident of that country. In Canada, you don't have to do that. And so you could just go and take a trip to Canada and take in the sites, um, stay at a nice hotel and then uh, open a bank account. But now you have, say, you know, $5,000 deposited in a Canadian. Bank account. As long as your total funds held offshore are fewer than ten thousand dollars, you have uh, no virtually no reporting requirements to the U.S. government. The Canadian government will still send a report every year to the U.S. government for you, but you don't have to file the disclosure forms to the U.S. government. And so now you can you can actually hold five thousand U.S. dollars there. But now you have a Canadian debit card. Ready for you. And so, if you needed to put a lot of money into Canadian dollars because there was some issue with the United States, or if you needed to put more money offshore, you have that infrastructure uh, set up. So, that's a banking flag. In some cases, you might plant a business flag. Now, for US Americans, this usually isn't a good idea um, necessarily if you're living in the United States, but you could set up a business flag or you might set up an offshore trust if you had more money and you're trying to do that. Um, those that's flag theory and none of that really interacts with travel, uh, necessarily. It's just a little bit kind of that, that's what it is. Now, if you, with travel, what would you start? Well, I think that most people, the more I travel, the more I'm convinced that most people probably aren't going to ever want to leave their home country, uh, in, in the sense in live abroad, move abroad. Um, most people aren't going to, you know, I, even though I'm quite comfortable as a traveler, I haven't lived in the United States for almost three years now, I think almost every day and and deeply analyze, maybe I should move back to the United States, right? Maybe I should. It's, there's a lot of good things going for it. Uh, and so... Uh, and so I think that the, the the hurdles are too high, and the difficulties too great for most people if they don't have a compelling reason to actually go abroad. And so I would just say, take some vacations for fun and uh, and, and get a little bit of experience. Choose a place that you want to go because you want to go there and go there, uh, because that in and of itself can be useful. Now. I say that most people aren't going to want to go to live abroad, but that still doesn't mean that the circumstances might not change. So I've talked about how if there's some kind of major crisis, one of the best things you can do is is leave during a crisis, if there's a major crisis. I don't expect a broad-scale crisis in the United States. But what I point out to people is that if you were from Venezuela, and you saw that there could be problems in the future, and you simply started getting exposure, and maybe you went and set up a residency program somewhere so you could live outside of Venezuela, maybe you moved some of your money from Venezuela to the United States, et cetera, then by the time things got bad enough, you could simply go, and you could could have all of your affairs structured so that you could leave the place that there was a massive crisis the people um you know there's lots of people who did that and there's lots of people who still do that uh there are people who regularly go back to venezuela because they have their family there and their friends there but the guy living in venezuela who has an italian passport who has a small apartment uh, you know in portugal and goes back to venezuela for a couple of months to see family is doing a lot better than the guy whose whole affairs are there in venezuela and so that was, you know, a 22-minute <laughs> response to your question, kind of laying out the, the ideas. But to your specific question, there's nothing that I would say other than just say, go and try it. Uh, try, pick somewhere that you want to go and just go for a short trip. And what I would do is I would not, I would not make it a hard place, right? Um, maybe go to Canada. Canada feels in most things just like the United States. And so if you're in Indiana, it's an easy drive. Drive up. Spend a week, you know, buzzing around Canada. Um, get a little experience. It's virtually the same experience. If you're going somewhere else, then pick some place that's relatively easy because of tourist infrastructure, right? Uh, go and spend a week in Costa Rica. Um, choose a place that is known for welcoming tourists fairly easily. And then while you're there, just start doing things that interest you. Uh Along the way, you'll start to build those travel skills, right? Your flights are gonna get canceled and or they're massively delayed. And so you're sitting there saying, Okay, what do I do? <laughs> How do I fix this problem? First time it happens to you, it's a little overwhelming. Fifth time it happens to you, you learn to move quickly. <laughs> you know, we were scheduled to fly from Mexico to Costa Rica, um, and our flight got canceled on us. I had to sit there and just pivot, you know, and and, and book a whole new a whole new itinerary. And so, uh the answer is just start and and go somewhere that you want to go. But the detailed answer on flag theory is don't start by saying, I'm just going to move everything offshore because you're not right. You're not going to do that. But think, what could I do that would be a small baby step? Right. I could go and open an offshore bank account. Uh, I could look in my family tree and see if, you know, grandma was from Ireland uh, and then just start working your way down the, down the list. If you're looking for kind of the original thing, go and find a copy of the PT book by W.G. Hill. Uh, that's the original book that focused heavily on the flag theory. You can find some good guys online that write about it in more detail as well. Uh, but I would start with the book. Uh, it would be my suggestion. Good intro for you, Andy. All
1: right. Uh, yeah, thank you. Again, the only, like, maybe I started jumping off a little bit on the wrong foot with flag theory just kind of like what you talked about in your uh, uh, economic crisis course of maybe police during a bad time. So would you say just taking a country that seems nice and going there on vacation and doing tourist things is a reasonable way to experience that? Can I get like, I might or might not want to go here if I decide living in the U.S. becomes untenable?
0: Yeah, I think without question, that's what you should do. You know, I I worked with a, a private consulting client recently, and this we were talking about some of these things. Client was quite wealthy and um was, uh, but but there was no chance that the client was going to, you know, move abroad. His wife didn't enjoy traveling, et cetera, uh, and so I said, where is the place that? That your wife actually does enjoy going. And he listed the particular place. It was a a small Caribbean island. And I said, buy a a small vacation condo there. And the idea is that, um, you know, my wife would get on an airplane and go to Mexico with me. But most people wouldn't if they haven't been to Mexico, if they don't know anything about it. Uh, And so where is, you know, where is your family actually likely to go? If you're actually concerned and you would actually leave in such a scenario, where would you actually go? Now, what I have become convinced of through the pandemic, one thing that's different, one of the things that I have changed my mind on when I did that course, um, after I recorded the original course, I released an update after six months. And I said, you know, one of the things I've changed my mind on is the fact that I said that you don't, that residents, things like residency permits and such are not as important as I first thought they were. I was like, you can just do this as a tourist. Well, I've changed my mind on that for two reasons. Number one is we could see that in a pandemic, moving as a tourist, movement as a tourist has been highly restricted, but those who had residency permits set up have had much more access. But more importantly, I have noticed and observed that most people aren't actually going to go somewhere if they don't have some kind of accommodation there. And so you have to be thoughtful in terms of what makes sense with the amount of money that you have. But I am convinced now that having a vacation condo on the beach that you know that everyone likes to go to is worth it if you're actually gonna try to convince your family to leave in an uncertain circumstance. If you look at many disasters, right, we're talking about disaster planning, why do people get caught up in a disaster? Usually it's because they ignore the warning signs and they don't want to leave, right? The classic example would be uh, sitting in hurricane country. And why do people get stuck in a bad hurricane and potentially run risk of losing their life? Well, because they don't have an escape plan or an evacuation plan that doesn't cost them a lot of money and doesn't cost them a lot of mental energy. They're sitting at home. They're like, well, I don't want to take the, how am I going to find a hotel where my pets can go, etc. And they don't have the plan in place. So if in that scenario, right, I think it'd be overkill to necessarily keep a vacation home. But just imagine the guy who lives in Miami who also has a... Uh, a vacation home in Jacksonville even if it's a small modest place he has a much easier time saying to his wife honey we gotta go we gotta get out of Miami and they just go a few days early and it just becomes a few days out of town you know or a few days at their favorite resort in Orlando rather than uh, a big thing and so I, I'm convinced the same thing applies that if you are if you would leave your st- city your state your your country then and then you probably do want to designate more money to actually having a place ready to go so um that was a long answer, but I hope an in- interesting one. And and my only comment would be, Andy, that I encourage internationalization, but I don't think that means you have to actually go somewhere and live somewhere full time. Um so hopefully you can figure out the level that you want to apply that stuff in your own um in your own uh planning. All right, we go to Andrew in Michigan. Andrew, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today, sir?
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure pleasure to talk with you, Joshua. Um, my question for you is: uh, I'm 38. I own a real estate investment company, um, and I'm at a point in my life now where you know personal debts paid off, and um, own a substantial amount of assets that both produce cash flow because I'm in the multifamily investment space. Uh, and I'm starting to look at other investment strategies outside of the norm. And recently, I was introduced to the concept of premium finance. Uh, To create a, uh, you know, life insurance policy for the purposes of whether it be retirement income or to, you know, create enough wealth for a family trust, you know, foundation, that type of thing. And it's being a real estate guy who understands leverage and borrowing and, you know, that type of thing. uh, It has piqued my interest. So I was just curious your personal uh, fundamental philosophical thoughts on. Uh, captive finance uh, strategies you know utilizing insurance to create
1: wealth.
0: All right so the basic concept is that you're going to borrow money from a lending company and you're going to use those borrowed funds to purchase life insurance building up inside cash values and then how are you going to pay off the 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 uh, the loan from your real estate cash flow? Uh,
2: Well, so you actually pledge, you know, gap collateral or or a collateral uh, to get a bank uh, letter of credit, a standing letter of credit that you can then utilize, uh, you know, at another bank to you to get the financing. Um, The collateral is paid off or the the bank loan is paid off within the first 15 years uh, based off of the ever increasing uh, cash value. Of the insurance policy itself. Um, and then after 15 years, the loan's been retired. And then the cash value, you know, this cash surrender value continues to grow after kind of that reset. Um, and then if you're young enough, right, after 30, 35 years, it produces a substantial amount of income.
0: Which company did you quote the insurance policies with?
2: So this is being quoted with. Um, uh, an LPL guy uh, called Affinity Insurance Partners, but the company that they use for this is North Star Funding Partners. They're kind of the premium finance funding um, entity.
0: So North Star is going to, um, who, who, so who's issuing the policy? Is it North Star, a company that's issuing the policy, or they're just simply providing the, the money?
2: They're providing the the funding and the processing of the actual account, yes. and
0: then with which company is the proposed insurance policy?
2: Um, I believe the policy is with Allianz.
0: And what's the level of premiums that you're 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 considering?
2: Yeah. So in my current illustration that I have set up, uh, pledging a million dollars of collateral. Uh, and then have about a fifty thousand dollar annualized contribution for the next ten years uh, for a total of you know five hundred thousand of out of pocket
1: costs
0: so this is one where I would need to I mean I would need to see the actual numbers and of review the terms the loan and, and everything. And so here's so in in concept I have no, I have no fundamental conceptual problem with really any kind of asset strategy, even including a financing strategy, as long as it fits into someone's overall situation at an appropriate scale. And of course, those are details that would be inappropriate to go into here. But I'm assuming the best from what you're saying, and so um, you would just want to say, okay, is this does this make sense? To, does this make sense to me? Uh-huh.
2: Yes. And also downfalls or any, right. any pitfalls that you could see, you know, because downside risk management is incredibly important in my business. Right. And I'm looking at this um, to, to, just to give you ballpark numbers so you can get an idea mm-hmm. of the level I'm talking. So the $50,000 contribution uh, at one point, you know, the loan's up to $9 million. Uh, so it's it's a substantial loan. Uh, but obviously, it builds a massive cash value, and after sitting for 30 years, um, based off of about a 4% annualized return, you know, you're pulling out, or you have the ability because the cash value is big enough to pull out, you know, over a million dollars a year of of non-taxable income,
0: okay. right? So let me slow down because this is interesting to talk through a few of the numbers. First of all, what's the face amount of the policy?
2: Uh. Face amount would be gross death benefit of about 14 million bucks.
0: Okay. So they're going to underwrite you with an Allianz policy for $14 million. You're going to make an initial premium payment or they're going to make the initial premium payment. Who's making the initial premium payment?
2: Uh, the the financing company is.
0: And how much are they going to make as a premium payment?
2: So the total premium schedule is about 675000 a year.
0: Right. So they're going to make an initial premium payment of $675,000 for a $14 million policy to Allianz. Is that right? Correct. Okay. You're going to pay out of pocket. How much of that?
2: $50,000.
0: Okay. So so year one, you pay $50,000 to the bank, to Northstar. Northstar yep. makes a $675,000 payment to Allianz. Is that Right.
2: That is correct. Yes. You're
0: insured for $14 million. And this is whole life insurance or universal life insurance?
2: Uh, this is, I believe, universal life insurance.
0: Okay. You're insured for $14 million. Year two, what's the premium payment that North Star makes? Is it another 675
2: Same thing, yeah. It's straight line 675 for 10 years.
0: And you pay $50,000? Correct. Okay. They're going to fund the policy at $675,000 per year premiums into the $14 million policy. After 10 years, they're going to quit paying. Is that right?
2: Uh, That is correct.
0: Yes. Okay. So we've got a total of $6,750,000 into it. You are contributing $50,000 per year. Is that right? Correct. So after 10 years, you're into it for for $500,000. Is that right? And then after 10 years, you have no more premiums that are due as well?
2: That is correct.
0: So now in year 1 you die um who is the beneficiary is it is it a guarantee to them for more than the 675 or how much is endorsed to them and how much goes to your beneficiaries.
2: Yeah, so the gross death benefit on day 1, you know, call it 14 million, uh after death benefit payment, you know, about 13 million. Okay. So so really, and the reason I found this, just FYI, the reason I found this is because um, in my world of raising capital, I get you know mm-hmm. high-income professionals, business owners, professional athletes. And in talking to a, a friend of mine who does estate planning, um, he introduced me as a financial planner, and he specializes in professional athletes, college coaches, people who get big professional contracts, and they actually leverage Ooh. their contract to set this up as a strategy, right? You have a 20 year old that signs a $30 million contract in the NHL. Um, They utilize this and sometimes with no money out of pocket to set a a policy in place so that for the rest of their life, when they hit 45, 50, 55, whatever, they have income. Um, And so, and that, that was the original concept or how I, how I came across it. But being a business guy in real estate, you know, understanding leverage, this, this had, piqued my interest is just another, right. Bucket, right? another right, bucket. Right. 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 Yeah.
0: So I just trying to walk it through and explain and get a sense of the numbers. Okay. So in no. your, f- so, um, fast forward 30 years. Okay. Yep. When uh, does, does the financing company always have some portion of the death benefit endorsed to them? Or at some point in time, do they get released from the death benefit?
2: Uh, so, after the loan is retired in year ten, mm-hmm. they have no further you know death benefit that's owed to them.
0: So the idea is that in year one, they're gonna come out of pocket seven million six million six million seven hundred fifty thousand dollars. So basically, yep. when you said it got a nine million dollar loan, you're signing documents to North Star saying, I'm gonna pay you guys you know, six point. Um, I'm going to pay you guys six. Uh, I owe you nine million dollars because you're promising Correct. to make these six million these uh, payments to the life insurance company.
2: Correct. Yes.
0: So, so the risk. So first of all, let's go three years in. Your business takes a dump. You can't make your fifty thousand dollars premium payment. What happens then?
2: Yep. So it's my understanding that the uh, you can either abstain. At the policy at that time, uh, and then just build it off of what is there, which mm-hmm. would be a much smaller number, um, or you can defer and then pay at a later date. I was actually thinking about putting the money aside ahead of time in a mm-hmm. you know cash equivalent account uh, and earmarking it for
0: it. So yeah. So I don't have a great answer for you because it's one of those giant it depends, and I'm not <laughs> sure. So when you have so just imagine this, right? There are people all over the world that have lots of money and people who have lots of money want a return on that money. And if they can get a return on the money, then they're happy to lend it to you. You know, this being in real estate, loads of people line up and lend you money. Why? Because your money is secured by real estate. So yep. from that perspective, money that's secured by life insurance is a phenomenal reason for someone to lend out money. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, number one, you have, you have number one, you, you ha- have tremendously valuable collateral for yep. your loan. First of all, you have a death benefit. So if the guy dies and he can't make his $50,000, you're endorsed over a portion of the death benefit it makes you whole. Number two, you have some of the cash value endorsed over to you as collateral as well. So if the guy doesn't pay his loan, you still have access to some portion of the cash value that's been pledged to you as security for your loan. I'm sure Mm -hmm. that's in the contract, and so you're covered there as well. Number three, the underlying asset is an asset that would make anybody happy, right? It's not, an, it's not up and down. It's just a guaranteed up, up asset. Yep. It's being managed by a giant insurance company that has a good investment team. It's very, very stable. It's very secure, et cetera. And so, it's a really, it's a really good way for you to get a modest rate of return on on your money uh, by lending the money out. And so, it's it can make sense. So, what's what is the limiting factor? limiting factor is the insurability of the person. Why can't yep. why can't that that company right? Why can't uh, har, uh, I lost the name, doesn't matter. the, the North Star. The ba- why can't the bank go out and just buy their own insurance policies? Well, they can. As long as they find people that they have an insurable interest in, right? So Northstar can go and they can put um, uh, key employee policies on all of their, their CEO and their CFO and their whole management team. And I'm sure they have it, right? You mentioned the bully, the bank-owned life insurance, and the Kohli market, corporate-owned life insurance. Companies who have the cash flow can put in place tens of millions of dollars of life insurance uh, using the lives of their key employees. So that's doable. So, But the problem is that you run out of those. And so if you have more money, what do you need? Well, you need people who are willing to say, look, put an insurance policy on me. The problem is yeah. that's a little weird, right? You don't go to the bum on the street who who doesn't have any money and say, hey, listen, bum on the street, can we put a $10 million life insurance policy on your life? Of course, you don't do that, yep. right? There's no insurable interest. And the reason that, and, and the insurable interest just simply means that there's too much incentive for somebody to come along and bump them off and you collect your $10 million. So that doesn't work. There has to be insurable interest. In addition, there has to be financial capacity in order for this mm-hmm. to make it worth it, right? The insurance company can't come along to a guy making $60,000 a year and say, listen, yep. we're going to allow there to be a, a $9 million, or sorry, a $14 million life insurance policy on your head. The insurance policy yep. can come along to a guy who's wealthy, who can can qualify financially for a fourteen million dollar policy, and say, "Yeah, we're willing to issue the policy, and we don't much care where you get the money." Um, and so, all the pieces are there for it to be for it to be fine. Um, okay. What are the dangers? I think you have to first think about what is the probability of performance by the insurance company. Now, I think that in this case, a universal life insurance contract is most likely the right contract to use, right? This is a a sophisticated application, um, and this is an appropriate place for a universal life contract. The trouble that I I have is that I'm stained by remembering all of the policies that blew up in the 1980s <laughs> that were universal yep. life contracts because they were quoted at 14%. So you've got an illustration showing a 4% return and yep. you know my entire career when I sold life insurance and since then has been in a declining interest rate environment. Uh and mm-hmm. so I'm super sensitive to those projections knowing that that they're that, that they haven't always worked out. Um, I'm open, right? This insurance agent is no doubt a specialist, and I'm sure he knows his business. And so mm-hmm. that's fine. I'm open to it, uh, but I'm aware of it. The second risk is that, I, that the risk that is not usually represented very well by the insurance agents is the risk when taking the the, the flows out of the policy. And there's always two things that are glossed over, because there are good incentives for the insurance agent to gloss them over, risk number one is any life insurance illustration is a projection of what happens based upon a set of returns. Um, so in this case, it's being modeled at a four percent growth in the in the values of the of the of the company's general portfolio. Well, what if you don't get four percent growth? What if it's three percent? What if it's two percent? Um, that's a big risk. Because those numbers affect it ma- affect it massively. The second Absolutely. risk on the cash flow coming out is that this cash flow that's coming out is often modeled a little bit aggressively to make a nice mm-hmm. number on the paper, which makes you feel good. It's like, look, I can spend a million dollars a year. Well, you can take out loans against the policy. But you have to make sure that the policy stays healthy enough in order for it to continue in existence. because if you lapse the policy, meaning you take out too much in a loan and you can't you can't make the premium payments, because underlying, right? when you are um, when you're 85 years old, this insurance policy is going to be demanding premiums of you know, I don't know 3.2 million dollars yeah. or whatever the number winds up being inside the policy. And so there has to be enough growth there in the policy in order for it to satisfy that $3.2 million premium. If you mm-hmm. suck out all the money too early, then you may not be able to make it. And then what happens? Well, then the policy lapses uh, and then you have a taxable event, right? Then all of your withdrawals, all of the, what loans, what was tax-free, you're now mm-hmm. 1099 for that whole, you know, that whole giant stack. And so that's the other yeah. place where these, these policies can go wrong. And I would just want to go through and um, analyze and say, okay, in every scenario, what happens? The last point, and I need to make sure that the audience understands this. Why is the, What is the other reason why the insurance company, um, sorry, the bank doesn't, can't find more of this business to place? Well, not only do they need someone with financial capacity so that the insurance companies are going to be willing to issue the life insurance policies of big numbers, but they need someone who's young and healthy enough to make these numbers work. And so a lot of times the guy who can make a $675,000 year premium payment or even a $50,000 year premium payment is often 58 years old, often, you know, yep. 100 pounds overweight and has type 2 diabetes. Well, not a great risk. Mm-hmm. And so you're young enough and presumably healthy enough that this, this can work. Um, yep. so I'm not opposed to it. It's not an absolute no for me. Um, i'm open to it i would have to i mean you know you this stuff is specialized the agents who do it they have tremendous yeah. knowledge um i would review the paperwork very carefully and then i would take it i would take what you have with the actual illustrations and such and i would take those illustrations to um another couple of insurance agents and i would say um tell me everything wrong with with premium financing and so i've been out of the insurance business long okay. enough now that i don't have you know a pre-prepared Script as to why you know everyone doesn't do premium financing, but I would take it to a couple of competitor agents and I would say why shouldn't I do this? And then of course solicit some quotes with some other companies because uh, there are other competitors and and you just want to make sure you're getting the best product.
2: No, of course I appreciate. Thank you, Joshua. This you know again this being radical personal finance I. You know, this is such a, you know, little known strategy and it is complex. And obviously the guys that write policies like this make big premiums. I know it's a very expensive way to buy life insurance, but I figured uh, being it would be right in your wheelhouse for something. So thank you for your analysis.
0: It can be a total win, win, win. And I uh, know you got to go, so feel free to, to, to go if you need to. It can be a total win, win, win um, across the board, right? You, you if, yep. if something's going to put potentially millions of dollars in your pocket, you don't mind your insurance agent getting a hundred or $200,000 commission check. Correct. Now, if, if he's the guy who brought you this and he's the guy who's got the relationship with the lender and he's the guy who's, um, got the company and he says, look, this policy design, et cetera, then yep. you want him to make some money. And there's no question. The money here is, is potentially huge. Um, this is very specialized, and and these are the, the, the agents who work this. Um, they they work hard for it because they gotta they gotta work really hard to find the appropriate cases, and then to put of the course. deals together. They take a long time, etc. Uh, yep. So I'm not opposed to it. It's just go through all the scenarios, right, and, and then make sure that you've got the financial capacity to make your $50,000 premium payments. And then make sure that you've got the capacity um, in a worst case scenario, how much you're on hook for to the lender, what happens, the Mm -hmm. lender goes belly up, et cetera, that you've got the the ability to work it through. Uh, I'm not scared of it. Just as as with any big financial decision, go uh, get competitive quotes and go slow and make sure you understand all the options.
2: Excellent. Thank you again.
0: Cool. My pleasure. All right. Um, and I, I mean, you know, opportunity cost also, right? What could you do with that money, <laughs> right? If there's a way that you could invest it um, better, always think about that as well. All right. Lindsay in Wisconsin. Lindsay, welcome to the show. How can I serve you today?
3: Hi, Joshua. Thanks so much. Um, I was hoping that you could uh, help me crystallize my thinking about uh, about a decision that um, that me and my family are trying to make. Um so, uh, so our plan right now, we, me and my husband both work at, uh, W2 jobs. Um, and in addition to that, we have a small, um, and growing real estate business, uh, and we're planning in, uh, it, within five years to be able to, uh, leave our W2 jobs and take our kids, uh, traveling, um, you know, thinking like, uh, uh, world schooling. We've got three, three young boys, um, and, uh, for, and go for at least a year uh, to, to, to kind of try things out. Um, and the purpose of this is, is threefold here. Um, you know, we want to have fun and travel and spend time as a family and you know, really enjoy ourselves. Uh the second is uh we want to look for opportunities, um you know, looking f- to to grow our investments and diversify uh our real estate business abroad. Um and we'll be, we'll be, you know, we're looking now also, but um, you know, I think it's a lot easier once we're we're actually in the uh, locales. Um and then the third uh reason that we want to do this and um, we wanna kind of do this whole plan is uh, is to have options. Um you know, uh, in the way of if things if things go bad here, we would like to um, you know be able to uh, you know not not be one hundred percent tied to the United States. So here's the decision. Um, my husband is uh, has the opportunity uh, through um, through ancestry to get uh, Portuguese citizenship, um, and uh, it'll cost him about five thousand uh, dollars for legal fees and etc. Um, and then after he gets it and it's a couple, a couple years, it'll take the process. Um, and then, uh, and then I can apply and I could get it and it'll be about the same cost if everything remains the same. And then our kids it's can get it o'clock. for uh, a little bit less each. Uh, they can apply once we both have it. Um, so this Portuguese citizenship, I, I would love your opinion about this, um, we, me, and my husband have both traveled extensively, uh, and you know have been to Portugal. It's nice, <laughs> um, but we don't have any any specific desire for Portuguese citizenship. Um, you know, and kind of similar with EU. I know that there are some opportunities, uh, you know, both for travel and investment. Uh, anyway, I, you know, can you can you? Uh, we might be able to just invest the money elsewhere. We, we live in Manhattan and even though we, you know, we do fine. Um, I'm not sure if we should, if we should go for it or not.
0: If I were in your shoes, even if I were totally broke, I would call up, I would go online. I would fill out whatever interest forms I could find for a 0% credit card. And I would put the fees on a credit card in order to get the Portuguese citizenship. Um, and it's it's exceedingly valuable. And without question, you should be pursuing it. The question of whether or not you should file for Portuguese citizenship has nothing to do with where you might wanna travel, how you might wanna travel, where you might wanna invest your money. Um, it's an entirely separate and distinct thing. And so there is no downside. I mean, actually, let me pause that. Are either you or your husband involved in top secret government or military work? No. Do either you or your husband have any ambitions of being, you know, the president of the United States or a high-ranking politician where you could experience political blowback by being a dual citizen? No. Okay. Then as long as those things are the case, you don't have to pass a security clearance, et cetera, there is no downside of your not having – there's no downside to your having Portuguese citizenship, and potentially massive upside. How old are your children?
3: Uh, Four, two, and one.
0: Okay. And other than this option to get Portuguese citizenship, do you or your husband as of yet have a second citizenship uh, from any other country?
3: Yes, my husband uh, has an Israeli citizenship.
0: Okay. So also excellent to have. Uh, and so he would be filing for Portuguese citizenship under the Sephardic um, uh, Jewish option for oh, – it's not Sephardic. What's the name of the Jewish?
3: It uh, is. It is. is you got yeah. it. Yeah. Okay.
0: All right. Phenomenal. Okay. So, yes. So there is – so it's, it's even clearer. Yeah, no question. There's no downside to it. Uh, and it's worth doing without question. Um, the Sephardic ancestry that both Spain and Portugal have offered due to the their um, – I don't know what adjective to use, evil treatment of Jews, <laughs> they want the, Jews back, right? <laughs> um, the The options there are are, are anyway, they, they're genuine and they are real. Now, Spain has tightened up their program and changed that. And the thing with this program is you need to do this now. He needs to go ahead and do it now. Um, it sounds like if this is the Sephardic program, then the $5,000 is large going to be finding consultants who can prove the genealogical records, et cetera, to prove his heritage?
3: Yeah, it's um, it's actually working with the legal team. Um, his uncle okay. um, already, already got uh, Portuguese citizenship, cool. so the genealogy is awesome. really easy.
0: Great. So, yeah, so the answer is very obvious. And let me tell you why, just to tell you, you know, because if you're going to spend five grand or however much it winds up being, let me tell you why. If you're looking for an ultimate backup plan... Um, having another citizenship is very valuable because even if you had nothing else as a backup plan, you know, my course is funny. uh, The earlier caller referenced my course. I give this example in my course uh, about having something like a European Union citizenship, right? Imagine that you went completely broke and you're living in the United States. The job market in the United States completely implodes. um, You know, the dollar is a mess, et cetera. Well, if you can get on an airplane and go from the United States to somewhere in the European Union, you have the ability to work there in the European Union. And you could potentially save your family by simply going and getting a job as a busboy in a restaurant, right? To be able to put food in your children's mouths. That right to work by being a citizen of another country is an exceedingly valuable thing. And so the ability to know that for the rest of your husband's life, potentially your life, potentially of your children's lives, they could have at least one other country. In your husband's case, he already has one other, but now he would have at least one other with Portugal. And what that means, because the European Union is potentially up to is it 26 countries in the EU, I think now. So there's 25 other countries that he could go and get a job in. Um, that's so, so valuable. What about if, you know, the other examples I give in my course, right, what if um, you got sick, right, and your husband was totally broke and you couldn't afford uh, health insurance and you're totally wrecked? Well, having access to another country, especially a country like Portugal, has a public health system, that's potentially life-saving for you to be able to get medical treatment, what if you're, you are you guys lose it all and you got these three children and you want them to go to college, but you lose it all? Well, the fact is that you could go to Portugal and enroll them in one of the government schools there and they could get a college degree or any other co- school in the European Union without tuition money out of their pocket. So it's an exceedingly valuable option for them. Uh, it's just – and I could go on for another 20 minutes about the benefits of it. And so as a simple backup plan, anybody – who has the option to get any kind of of second citizenship by, by inheritance or by heritage should definitely start that process going. The only reasons you wouldn't do it is if it caused you a problem with your career, that's why I asked about the medical things, or potentially sometimes if the country that you're getting the citizenship from has some kind of significant restriction. So for example, um, there are a very small number of countries that if you are a citizen of those countries, you simply cannot be the citizen of another country, countries like Singapore, right? And so if your mom was Singaporean uh, or his mo- his mom was Singaporean, and he was considering. Well, should I really file for Singapore citizenship if it is an option? Well, you can't be a dual citizen, or in his case, a triple citizen with the United States and Singapore. So that could be that's that could be a no go for him, um, for that reason. Or sometimes a country might impose something like military service. And so here, a country like Israel is a big, uh, is a big consideration, right? You have to think, do we want our children to have Israeli citizenship knowing that that will subject them to uh, potentially military service? And there are some other countries as well. So, um, but, but Portugal has none of those downsides, right? There's no mil- mandatory military service. Portugal has no problem with dual citizenship. And it has access to the European Union. And so having that access to the European Union is, is extraordinarily valuable, um, both from your ability to be a tourist, both for your ability to travel, um, you, you know, the Portuguese citizenship, if, if, in the, if, if coming up in five years, your family is world schooling, um, that the ability to travel on Portuguese passports is much more neutral than traveling on either Israeli or US American passports. And so that can quite literally make you safer in some parts of the world than traveling on either the other um, passports. And so as I see it, the trip is irrelevant. The fact that you may or may not wanna own property anywhere in Portugal is irrelevant. Um, It's only a matter of the fact that having that second citizenship, even if he never does get a passport or not, doesn't matter. Just having that option is very, very valuable. I had a friend of mine who was in a really difficult place uh, because of the pandemic, and she had a lot of health problems, et cetera. And she was living in a poor country. Um, the country didn't have a lot of options. She had been divorced, just in a really rough place, um, but she had she was an Italian citizen. And I persuaded her and convinced her, and I literally paid all of the costs and I'm still supporting her to move her to Europe. Uh, and why? Because the country that she was living in had nothing like the economic clout of Europe. And I told her, I said, listen, you know, let's say that c- the COVID economic crisis is bad, like I think it's going to be. This was a year ago. I said, if the recession, lasts for um, two years here where you're living it's going to last for 14 months in europe Um, if it lasts if 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 the vaccines arrive in in three years here where you're living they're going to arrive in 18 months in europe i said you the fact that you have the ability as an italian citizen to move to europe Means that you can access what at the time was was a better solution, and it has turned out to be better for her, better to access to a job market. And so, if she didn't have that, there was just no other options, right? She couldn't go and apply for um, access. There was no other big country economy. She had no ability to go to the United States, no ability to go to Canada, no ability to go to to Spain or to Italy. Like without that, she would have had no options. But because she had an Italian passport, it was such a valuable backup plan. Uh, and so I'm I'm pressing the point to impress upon you that this has no connection to where you might want to travel or where you might want to invest. It's worth pursuing as a very very cheap long term insurance plan, and you'll be grateful to start the process. Do it now and move it as fast as possible, because the Portuguese government may change those rules in the coming um, in the coming years. Um, that's what Spain has done and is doing. And so do it now and go as aggressively as you can uh, to start the process going. And again, even if I didn't have the money, I would borrow the money to make it happen.
3: Super helpful. Thank you so much,
0: Joshua. My pleasure. <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to leave you in no doubt about what my opinion is on that one. All right, Parker in Washington. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today?
4: Hey, Joshua. Thanks for taking my call. My um, my wife and I recently listened to your Seven Rings of Freedom and the Spouse of Liber- Liberty episode mm-hmm. really uh, kind of struck a nerve with us, a chord with us. Cool. We are expecting our first baby here pretty Congrats. much any day now. She's, she's due at the end of this month. Um, we've spent the last six months since we heard that episode working hard to pay off as much debt as we could in order to try to get her to stay at home. But awesome. we had to go through IVF to have our baby, and we've mm-hmm. still got about $45,000 of credit card debt from that. Okay, um, And basically, my income covers our expenses just about exactly, with a little bit of room for personal care and entertainment and uh, things like that. But just trying to get a perspective of what would you do I mean, basically, if we were to have any flexibility to try to pay down this debt quickly, and we do play the zero percent balance transfer and uh, charges game, so we've we've got them all on zero percent interest credit cards. We've been kind of cycling through that, trying to get them paid down. A big chunk, about thirty-five thousand. Uh, the zero percent interest promotion ends in October, so mm-hmm. coming down to have to move that around again. I've got like two hundred thousand in available credit limits, so Good. you know i can I can keep moving it, but without her working, it's going to take us a long time to get that last little bit of debt cleared up so that we can have more freedom uh, to be able to travel and, and things like that, which we love to do um, so we're, I'm just trying to Figure out if you have any ideas. Like we have, we have 401ks, uh, each about fifty three thousand in our 401ks, and we have about eighteen thousand in an HSA that we could pull from because we've had all the medical expenses. Um, So I'm just trying to figure out if you have any ideas, or I mean, she could work two days a, a week, and we could pay off that debt in a year and a half. What what kind of what kind of work do you do? What
0: kind of work do you do? Does she do? How much do you earn? Does she earn?
4: I earn about 110 before tax. I'm a rehab director and do physical therapy and she's an RN. So she's got a lot of flexibility and in a schedule like she could pretty much do whatever she wants to do.
0: And when is the baby expected? August 27th. Awesome. So any day now. Great, Um, so first of all, congratulations, and this child will be very precious to you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Anytime I have ever worked with somebody who has invested a lot of money into uh, conceiving their baby, it has made me appreciate uh, afresh how precious children are. Right? Um, Many of us uh, have not had to invest money uh, into conceiving our children. For most of us, the actual conception of our children has been far more fun. Um, but uh, it just makes me appreciate how precious children are and they genuinely are an investment. And I, uh, I pray that, um, that you have a beautiful delivery of your baby very soon. First thing is- Thank you very much. Yeah, first thing is I wouldn't do much at this stage financially other than pile up cash. Kudos to you for, for saving money. Uh, And for trying to pay things off and for working as much as possible. At this stage, though, with the child's birth imminent, I wouldn't be paying anything extra. What I would do, since you are um, playing the credit card game, and by the way, have you taken my – did you take my course on that topic
4: I haven't. Um, actually, before you came out with that course, I ha- we've been doing this for a few years, and I've okay. just kind of researched on my own and got okay, a pretty good. good handle on it. All
0: right. You should have taken my course um, just to make sure that there are options there. But what you want to make sure that you do, it sounds like you're doing the stuff right, and so let's assume that you you've know everything there is to know. Good. So while her income is high... Apply for as many before she stops working and before the baby is here, apply for as many new cards as you can find using an appropriate level of strategic thinking and make sure that you have moved the debt onto the longest term offers. That you can get at reasonable prices, and so what I mean is, um, if they offer you, you know, one point nine nine percent for eighteen months or zero percent for eleven months, right? Take the eighteen month offer, and just stretch things out as much as possible. Um, don't be silly, but I would I would go ahead and take any three percent fees they offer. I'd try to stay away from the five percent ones, but even that, you know, if necessary, fine but try to get all this debt stretched out to as long as possible and as stable as possible so that you have breathing room. That's the first thing um, that I would do. And then beyond that, I would not pay any extra right now. When the birth of a baby is imminent in your general financial flows, you wanna have as much money available as possible. Because if something happens with the birth that makes it uh, complicated, You want to have a war chest of cash so that you can fight that problem. Uh, I've had friends who, um, you know, I'm just thinking of of one of my friends, their child. uh, I forget the medical name of it. But anyway, they had a child in the NICU, right? Child in the NICU, even if all the medical bills are covered. Right, And and what people don't understand is even if all the medical bills are covered, right, you're still going to not be working. You're going to have expenses for staying in a hotel, expenses for food, um, all that stuff that's there. And so I'm just always conscious of the fact that, hey, sometimes things are difficult. And because of that, pile up, pile up cash. Um, The next thing is wait for the birth of the baby. And then once the baby's here, enjoy the birth of the baby. Um, The most important thing you can do in the first few months of a baby's life is take care of mama and take care of baby. And so don't feel any pressure for her to get up and go to work, for you to get up and go to work unnecessarily. Um, Just take time. It's a very special time and you've invested a lot into getting this to happen and so you wanna make sure that you take time and you want her to be totally emotionally free from all of this. One of the most important things that I think that you can do as a husband in this situation is isolate her from any financial stress associated with this and isolate her from any stress. From my research, um, both academic and in practical experience as the father of four children, the single most important thing that you can do that will help your wife to have a smooth and easy childbirth is to eliminate all sources of stress from her life. Most importantly, work with her to eliminate all sources of stress from the birthing process Especially as a first-time mother, most first-time mothers in U.S. American culture have a lot of anxiety around birthing. And so I won't give you my speech here, but anything you can do to relieve that anxiety is very important. The example that I use, we did we did a, a hypnobirthing class before our first baby. And in hypnobirthing, they have you do this uh, fear release exercise. And you can do it. You don't have to go through the class. I'm sure you've done other classes. But but the most valuable thing that we did was i had my wife make a list of every single thing that she was like fearful of related to birth and the num- and the num- the number one and then i looked at the list with her and we thought okay how can we relieve it and the thing that for her that made a big difference is my wife does not like to be rushed she hates feeling like somebody is rushing her And so her biggest fear, she was convinced that, look, the baby will come when the baby's ready. Like, I don't need to be worried about this, et cetera. But her biggest fear was being hurried or being pressured at the time of childbirth. She didn't want her Mm -hmm. friends calling her and saying, is there any news yet? And like, do you feel anything? Like, she did not want that. And so what we figured out was – that we could avoid that by simply not telling anybody when the baby was expected. (laughs) So what's become a standard operating procedure for us is that should we find ourselves expecting a baby, we don't tell anybody when the baby is expected, right? The EDD, the estimated due date, is a date that has a two-week wiggle room on both sides for a safe, normal, natural, healthy birth. And so, you know, if if the date, if, if our date were August 27, we would tell our family hey, August or September, you know, something like that, something towards the end of August, right, or or towards the beginning of September. And the idea is that if they don't know, then they can't ask. And we made it clear, like, sorry, but we don't tell anybody this and, and we're not going to uh, get this information to you. And so by doing that one simple thing, it relieved my wife of a tremendous amount of emotional stress. <laughs> and uh, so I encourage you to do that. Now, financial stress, same thing, is that don't put on her some expectation that we well, just got to have this baby and get it over with so you can get back to work, right? That may create emotional stress. And a woman's body responds physically to that emotional stress. Um, the, I've, I've talked to enough doulas and enough midwives and enough doctors who've given me stories of, of just emotional distress that women feel and how that causes their bodies to have awful childbirth experiences. And so to the extent that you can relieve that, relieve that and include in that finan- emotion- financial stress. Second thing is I am convinced that there is plenty of evidence that the single most important thing that you can do in the first few months of the baby's life is obviously allow time for the physical recovery of your wife uh, and of the baby, but just allow time for them to get to know one another. Uh, um, You know, the, 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 the first three months of a baby's life, some people call it the fourth trimester, Uh, Because a baby is still developing outside of the womb. Human babies, when they're born, are not fully developed. They are still developing outside of the womb. And so you want to give time for the baby to develop and for mama to heal. And then the more time that you can give to your wife and the baby, the better will be the relationship, right? That's the start of a lifelong bond before between um, a mother and a child, and what's interesting is that I've always noticed my wife, like she, she doesn't, my wife often doesn't have a lot of attachment to a baby until the baby is there. Um, like she, she isolates, she uh, seg- segregates and like sections, parts of her thinking off sometimes. And so like, she's looking forward to the birth most of the time, but it's like, eh, you know, she's not really connected to it. And then I just watch in the first few days, watch them bond. And after the baby is a few weeks old, she loves the thing. But she didn't love it like right at the beginning. It took time for that bond to develop. And it's fascinating. Even biologically, right? The best thing you can do is just provide lots of time for, um, you know, mom and baby to snuggle, lots of skin on skin contact. Biologically, a mother's body will change the chemical makeup of her breast milk in response to the scent of the baby, the scent of the baby's poop, the scent of the baby's hair, she'll change, her body will change what the baby's nutrients are receiving based upon that time. And so all of this is emphasizing to you that as your financial advisor, I hereby command you to ignore the finances for a few months. that's that's the point I'm trying to impress upon you, is that there are times in which you work like a maniac, and you deal with your finances, and there are times in which you don't. Is, are you receiving that point loud and clear?
4: Yes, very much. And I'm actually the one that I'm, I'm more like, we can take as much time as we need to pay this stuff off. Like, I'm not concerned about that. She's like, oh, I have to, I. she's very debt aware and has always, she's a, an immigrant. Her parents are immigrants, and they like there's a lot of pressure on her to work versus stay home. Sure. And so I'm trying to, after listening to your episode, really hammer that thought home that she doesn't have to feel that pressure and she can, we can do things differently. we yeah. just going to, you know, so we have t- a long-term positive outcome already planned with, with retirement accounts and we've got two uh, homes. So we've got a long-term covered. We just, ha- you know, it just might take us a little bit longer to get, there, but we'll enjoy the road a little bit better. Sure, you know? sure. So as long
0: as you've heard my first point, then to the second point. Yeah, Um yep. To the second point, if you and your wife see value in some of the things that I have said, and you desire for her to be a full-time mother, then you'll have to work on how to make that happen. Now the nice thing is that nursing is one of those careers if your wife is a nurse, it's one of those careers that's easy for her to keep her foot in the in the job market without it being an all-consuming thing. And in many cases, it's probably advisable, um, right? Because she worked hard to get her licensure, et cetera. And so if she can pull uh, you know one shift a week or go in on the weekend, something like that, then um, if that's not too disruptive to your family life, then that may be a very valuable thing that she'll wanna keep uh, current on everything. Um, what I would do, I mean, I'll just tell you my opinion, right? What I would do is that is simply this. If we had a financial problem, I'm going to solve the financial problem. And I will go make more money. And I would do whatever I needed to do to go make more money. And that's what I've always done. That's what I'm good at. And I believe that my family will be better off if my wife is there with our children, even if I'm not there because I'm working a side hustle or I'm building a business on the side, et cetera, our children are going to be far better off with that scenario than if, you know, she's working every Saturday and Sunday and I'm working Monday through Friday and it just, that's no fun. Now, can you do it? Sure. Mm -hmm. But what I would challenge you on is the same thing. I would challenge anyone. When's the last time you sat down and made a plan to make more money? Most people don't ever actually sit down and figure out how can I make more money? And so, okay, you made $100,000. Great. What's your plan to go from 100 to 150 in the next year? What's your plan to go from 100 to 500? Is that doable in what you're doing right now? Okay. If it is, then what do you need to do to prepare to do that? If it's not, then what can you do to to put yourself on a different trajectory where you have an actual plan in five years to go from a to five hundred, or at least to put yourself onto the track where that's a possibility. I'm not worried about $45,000 of credit card debt if the balances are served appropriately for someone who's making $100,000 who incurred the debt for IVF. It's not a big deal. Um, you'll pay it off quickly enough. You'll budget some of it, and most likely you'll make more money. What I would challenge you on is have you been serious about actually sitting down and saying, how can I make more money? And as a, as a man and as a husband, if you will grasp and take full responsibility for that. And then start working on a plan for that. I believe that you'll be well equipped to take care of the debt and then put your family onto a very different trajectory. So the next time you got to pay 50, whatever thousand dollars or whatever the, the total bill was, if you, if you wind up doing that again, you just, you cash flow it. And so my challenge to you is take responsibility for it. Relieve your wife of the responsibility of being the provider for your family. And then you make a plan that allows you to increase your income in order until you can provide the kind of lifestyle that you want to provide. Um, the answer to most financial problems is simply make more money. And most people don't ever actually sit down and make a plan to make more money. Uh, it's not the answer in all situations. But in your situation, almost undoubtedly, it's just make more money and take it seriously. You're a smart guy. Um, use your intelligence in your brain to sit down and analyze your income, analyze your career, and make a plan that that conceivably has you making triple what you're making four or five years from now. And in that scenario, the the credit card debt you'll you'll have it paid off pretty quickly.
4: Okay. All right. That sounds great. So keep the investments untouched and uh, just do do what we can and try to get some more income flowing which i have been working diligently on that we've got good. some property and we're going to rent it out on hipcamp and good yeah we got yeah. a couple of ideas going through
0: if your credit Definitely. cards if your credit cards are properly managed and they're all at low interests low interest rates and if you have good borrowing capacity so that when those terms run out you can roll them over again you can do that for years most people have not put in place what you do, but you've got two hundred grand of available credit. You have got these high, high household incomes, et cetera. So I don't mind having the forty-five thousand dollars of credit card debt temporarily. It was there for a reason. Um, from what you described to me, is there for a reason, a very good reason. Yeah. The second yeah. thing is, I would definitely not take money out of investments to pay it off. I wouldn't empty my bank account to pay it off. I wouldn't take money out of investments to pay it off. I certainly wouldn't take money out of my my four hundred one k. Would I take some money from my HSA? yeah maybe, but not if they'll let me roll it over at three percent. Now, it, let's say that you've got thirty-five grand that's at zero percent, but then you got ten grand that kicks up to fourteen point nine. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll take a ten grand distribution out of my IRA and put it in put it or my HSA and put it there, um, or I'll take out ten grand from my uh, savings account. I'll pay it off. I'll pay down. I'll pay. The balance down by $10,000. And then when I can get another 0% card, I'll go ahead and put the money back into my savings account. Um, and since you didn't, right. t- since you were unwise and not didn't take my course, wink, wink. <laughs> um, one of the things <laughs> that I emphasized is what's most important when you're surfing, um, credit card balances is never to ever p- wind up in a position where you're broke. And so you don't ever want to run out of money. And so you don't cash out investments. You don't spend down investments, right? I hate it. If somebody wakes up with fifty thousand dollars and they got thirty thousand dollars in the bank, and somebody gives them the advice, "Oh, listen, go take thirty thousand dollars and pay off the, uh, pay off thirty thousand of the fifty, and then you'll only have twenty thousand dollars, but you only have you know thousand dollars in the bank." My opinion, that's. A bad answer for most people, maybe not everyone, but that's a bad answer for most people, because the worst place to be when you have debt is broke, um, because then you can't pivot, you can't maneuver, you can't adjust. So keep your money and just figure out how to make excess money to pay off the debt in your
4: situation. Okay. All right. That's very, very clear. Thank you so much, Joshua. I really appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. And uh, thank you for indulging my little uh, birthing conversation. I just think it's so important to um, pay attention to that and not to put finances where they don't belong. So don't, don't think about money when you're in that phase of life. Tell yourself, all right, two months after the baby's here, then we'll start thinking about money again. David in New York, welcome. How can I serve you today, sir?
5: Hi, Joshua. Um... I wanted to ask you a question regarding um, setting up a um, consultancy-type business um, while living abroad, and what would be the best way to structure that, um, You know, assuming that you're an American citizen, to avoid taxes, probably especially self-employment taxes, or minimize those if possible. Um, I've done a little bit of reading, not too much, but... Uh, some of the suggestions seem to be that you can structure as an LLC, TETS as an S-Corp that pays a you know, reasonably low salary. Um, that seems to be probably the easiest or potentially do an offshore C-Corp. So I just wanted to get your thoughts uh, and see what recommendations you had.
0: Do you sell any kind of product or is it all personal services?
5: All personal services.
0: Okay. So this is the first thing, is that you cannot 100% eliminate uh, your taxes as a U.S. American living abroad when you're doing all personal services. Uh, Personal services do not fall under the same regulations as a business. And so um, the first thing I would say is can you design your business where instead of doing – Instead of doing your uh, your services, can you design a business or part of it where you sell a product, right? So if you take some area of personal knowledge and you package it as a um, as a product, a sale, an info product, a seminar, etc., then those and then sell that that portion, you can get truly um, truly um, tax free. What I would encourage you to do is go to UStax.bz. Um, and that's a guy there, UStax.bz. It's Stewart. I forget his last name. But on that site, he sells some courses. And one of his courses is for a freelancer. And that's what you are. So he has a course called a Tax Savvy Expat, who, which is a, a freelancer. And if you go through that course... He gives you the whole structure and get and walks you through it step by step. Of okay, how do I do this analysis? How, what do I go through, etc. So um, the first thing that you can do is, th- th- just to make it simpler, though, before you go and start filing for companies, etc. First of all, how much money are you making right now uh, from these services?
5: Well, this would be for my spouse, but um, how much I'm money she she'll make? Maybe like. One hundred and twenty thousand, or something like that.
0: Okay, so basically, it comes down to: is there a way to reduce? Um, is there a way to reduce? Is there a way to reduce uh, her self-employment taxes? Right. So, as a as an American living abroad, you can eliminate the uh, you can eliminate her federal income taxes using the foreign earned income exclusion. What I'm struggling to remember is I took Stewart's course. I bought it, and I buy all those. That's how I learn all my stuff. Is I find the people who are teaching me, and then I go and send them. I can't remember. I send them fifteen to fifteen hundred to one thousand bucks, something like that. Took all his courses, um, and what I can't remember is actually the structure that he that he teaches in that course. And so, um, I, I can't remember what it is that for freelancers at the moment. But that's what I would do. Uh, is set it up well you can make you can make an argument and you can say should i bother trying to reduce my my employment taxes right remembering that if she's making 120,000 she's ma- she's going to be maxing out her social security credits uh, based upon the social security wage base at that number and so yes she's going to pay 15% of her income in that uh, uh, in that towards social security and thus be better off. Um, I cannot remember. Stuart goes in that course, he goes over the calculations as to how much you can reduce it legally as a freelancer. And I cannot remember the number. Uh, And so uh, you have to check that out to, uh, to find out that structure, but that's what I, that's where I learned. Um, the freelancer structure, I just can't remember off the top of my head what the unique things were about it. What I would encourage you is see if she can productize it to some degree. And then I guess the only thing I would say is that it's also one of those areas where you know maybe you go ahead and set up a, uh, set up a business to do. I guess what I would tell you from having done it, the tax savings need to be worth it to you to deal with the costs of maintaining a business. So I pay, you know, if I have an offshore offshore structure, and at the in the very cheapest jurisdictions, you're going to pay several thousands of dollars a year to deal with the juris the jurisdictions and et cetera, and you're going to deal with the complexities of filing your tax forms for those offshore corporations. And so, unless you, like me, are kind of like a a hardcore, I don't want to be involved in a social security system, bunch of scam giant Ponzi scheme, blah, blah blah, gnashing of teeth. like if <laughs> if that's you and that's her, then yeah, go ahead. and I'd rather pay, yeah, you know three thousand dollars a year to to a jurisdiction to to go ahead and set up an offshore corporation, blah blah blah. But if you're a little bit less of a grumbly you know person than 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 I described, uh, the answer is just stay offshore. Take your deduction, take your exclusion for the federal tax, and then pay your employment taxes. File a Schedule C so that you can keep things simple. Uh, because even just the the form, when I first filled out my first, I think it's like the fifty five eighty three or something. I forget the name of the tax form. But when I first sat there, it took me. I'm a. I'm sh- I should be able to do it fast. It took me. It took me a long time, and I'm sweating bullets the whole time, knowing like if I don't get it, if I don't get this right, like you know, they're gonna put me up against the wall and shoot me. And so if, if unless you're super committed to I want this, I don't want this $10,000 going into the Social Security and Medicare, then for one hundred and twenty, I would just say um, file a standard Schedule C uh, and stay offshore and go ahead and pay the money for self-employment, save the federal income tax. Make sense?
5: Yeah, yeah, it does. And, and I think that's what we were leaning towards is kind of make it simple. In the end, it's not you know, a whole lot of money. Um, because like you mentioned, we, we wouldn't pay the federal income tax. It would just be the self-employment taxes. But anything we could minimize would help. But I, I agree. It's probably not worth going through the complexity of setting up offshore corporations. And
0: yeah. The not, other thing not, I would caution you is just simply have her check her earnings record, right? Um, I don't know what her earnings record could be. But um, it could actually be useful for her uh, to, to get these $120,000 years. Uh, on her social security record, so depending on what she was earning earlier in her career, if every year she earns one hundred twenty thousand dollars, she bumps off some year that she was earning twenty. That's going to make a big difference in her long-term social security benefits. And while I don't, I don't recant my opinion of social security being a significantly like dumb program and a giant Ponzi scheme. As a financial planner, it is a very useful asset because it is a guaranteed asset that is inflation adjusted. It's a guaranteed annuity. And so you should take a hard look at it. You should pull her to do this properly. You should pull her Social Security earnings record from SSA. You should run the formula and say and see, okay, which year is going to get bumped out with this $120,000. If she has a full earnings record of having always maxed out the wage base on Social Security, then this may not be so useful to her. Uh, in fact, and it may be worth it to say, OK, I'm going to go ahead and pay $3,000 a year to save, you know, the seven, what it would be on on Social Security and whatnot. But if these years of of Um, making the 120 are bumping off some lower earnings years off of her record, then it can also be worth doing as well. So I I would say I hate that 5583 form. I really hate it. Um, It's it. When I first filled, if if that's the number, I I can't remember the number, but the first time I filled that out, I just thought, why didn't anyone tell me this? Right. Why didn't anyone tell me I had to deal with this thing and go through and, and, uh, and do this. And it just made me, it's a it's a bear. And so if she's not super ideologically motivated like I am to be done with the social security system then I would say pay the self-employment taxes and move on.
5: Okay. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> Hopefully.
0: <laughs> I kind of have a hard hard uh, uh I hard uh time believing that really there's any woman in the world that's as grumbly as i am about things like social security taxes so uh, maybe they're out there but most of the time there are a bunch of guys like me out there that'll grumble about it's not fair it shouldn't, shouldn't be done but uh she's probably better off going and paying them uh and then if you depending on your assets again I, I don't need to repeat but it's a useful asset for her that's it for today's friday Q&A. I want to thank you all for listening and for calling in um Thank you for accepting my apology that I haven't been able to do as many of these over the last few weeks as I've wanted to. Uh, I love doing these shows. They're my favorite shows, but handling the logistics is just difficult. Um, A lot of it is just even just the scheduling and and, and whatnot. So I will um, bring them to you as frequently as I am able to do so and look forward to talking to you on the next one by your going to patreon.com slash radical personal finance and signing up there. Thank you.